0: Hi, my name is Audrey and you are listening to Miles of Murder, the true crime podcast brought to you from the road. This episode is being broadcast from Portland, Oregon, but has been prepared in San Juan Island, Washington. It's been a minute since I've brought you an episode, and it feels pretty good to be back behind the microphone. As always, don't forget to check on my Instagram at milesofmurder, where you'll be able to view case images from today's episode, as well as some location images from yours truly. Don't forget to also peep the show notes for source information and content warnings. And now that the housekeeping is all done, let's get started. Susan Monica was born on July 8, 1948, and served in the Navy during the Vietnam War before being honorably discharged. It was at this time that she transitioned from her dead name, Stephen Buchanan, to Susan Monica, and began her engineering career. In 1991, Susan purchased nearly 20 acres of rural Oregon land in the town of Weimar, an unincorporated community within Jackson County, Oregon, and at that time, she began her construction business. The land was undeveloped, and while skilled, it was tough for just one person. This is when Susan started putting ads out for farmhands. This isn't an uncommon practice in most rural areas, and the lifestyle can be appealing to nomads and those looking to live under the radar. Unfortunately, like any transient-type work, this creates space for some to fall victim to ill intentions. Robert Haney was 56 years old and, by all accounts, didn't have much, but he had all that he needed and, most importantly, all that he wanted in his life. He had a truck, a camper, his dog, his tools, and children who he kept in contact with. He lived a nomadic life and made a living doing odd jobs, which was what brought him to Susan Monica in 2013. Robert answered a help-wanted ad, searching for a handyman, and off he went to the tranquil serenity only found deep within the Oregon wilderness. The agreement was Robert would help Susan build out her land, and more specifically, a home for herself. Robert was a skilled tradesman, and in exchange for his service, he would be paid half in cash and be permitted to live in his camper on the property. Robert had made his living this way, and seeing no issues, he accepted the job and made his way to 9184 West Evans Creek Road. What took place over the course of those brief six months is vague, yet one thing is certain. Robert willingly drove onto that property, and only portions of his remains would ever leave. And worse yet, he wasn't the only victim to meet this fate. Robert's children kept in contact with him off and on while he worked on the land, and they became concerned when two months had passed with no word from their father. A few of his children made an unannounced visit to the property and quickly discovered a concerning scene. Greeted by Susan, the group was told Robert had left months ago, and that they needed to get his things. They were led through the property, which was riddled with abandoned cars, dilapidated outbuildings, and other debris. This wasn't like the environment that they imagined their father to be thriving in. They arrived at his truck and were further shocked. The camper was on the truck per usual, yet outside of their father's last known home, the contents were strewn about the wet Oregon ground. Their father took great pride in his trade and kept his tools organized and cared for, yet this scene demonstrated anything but. His dog ran loose, his things were seemingly ransacked, and his children were concerned. They immediately contacted the police and reported their father missing, with enough concern that authorities began to investigate immediately. Adults go missing every day, after all. It isn't a crime to pick up and leave your life behind, yet circumstances in which you do so and the trail left behind could very well create immense suspicion. Robert used what was called an Oregon Trail Card. If you're like me, you might be an 80s kid and immediately think about the damn Oregon Trail game and wonder when dysentery will set in. But I'm just aging myself at this point. The Oregon Trail Card Robert used is an EBT-style card. It's designed to help low-income individuals buy food items at qualifying locations. Each area tends to call these cards different things, but overall EBT, or Electronic Benefit Transfer, seems universal, but older generations might still refer to this as food stamps. Each card is linked to a holder like any other credit or debit card, and investigators started there. They were on a wild goose chase looking for a nomad who preferred cash, didn't own a cell phone, and lived pretty off-grid. Thankfully, they were able to pull his transaction history from the Oregon Trail card assigned to him and noted that he had used the card at a Walmart location not far from Susan's property not long before they started searching for him. Investigators immediately went to the Walmart location and requested access to the surveillance video from that particular time and day in question. Yet when they narrowed in on that transaction they were looking for, investigators were astonished when they spotted not Robert Haney, but instead Susan Monica. Assuming this was a financial crime and identity theft case, investigators established a search warrant for Susan Monica's home and property. It was during this routine search that officers discovered human remains, and quickly the tiny thread that they had pulled unraveled two murders no one saw coming. This case is fairly new in the world of true crime, yet the available information from reputable sources is pretty limited. The bulk of the information presented comes from the extensive interviews and interrogations of Susan Monica, to be honest with you. Hours upon hours of deciphering her lies and navigating her mental illness surely had depleted investigators. It's believed Susan shot both known victims before feeding them to her large herd of pigs. With some hogs weighing upward of 700 pounds, it's no surprise that what remains of the victims is pretty limited. Susan doesn't deny that they were fed to the pigs, yet how they ended up deceased is pretty murky. It's believed both men, obviously on separate occasions, planned to leave Susan's farm. The reasoning is unclear and could honestly be a natural transition they had planned to make and not have been under any duress. Yet watching hours of Susan's interview and interrogation has led me to believe that these men might have felt the urgency that your gut instincts give you when you need to escape something. Susan doesn't seem like the kind of person to bluff or hide emotions well. In other words, she has a hair trigger and seems to idle at a high RPM on a good day. Quick to anger, I wonder if these victims crossed her in some way and she saw their deaths as a means to an end versus asking them to leave. Making sense of her choices in life isn't something I honestly have the ability to do. But what is known is that Susan pawned two shotguns, one being pawned the day after investigators came to her farm looking for Robert Hanny. During a line of questioning about Robert Hanny, Susan abruptly asked for a piece of paper and proceeded to draw a crude depiction of the property and where to find the remains of another victim. Susan claims that Stephen D'Alesseno met his demise in 2012 after she found him trying to steal two of her guns. An argument ensued and from there the pair began to tussle. In the mix was a small 22 caliber pistol and Susan claims that during this physical altercation Stephen expressed that he wasn't going to go back to jail and shot himself in the head once before running off. You heard that correctly. Susan claims that he shot himself once in her presence and then took off running and shot himself four more times before he finally succumbed to his injuries. From there, Susan stated that she went to lie down and when she woke several hours later, he was being consumed by the pigs. She left his body with the pigs for a few weeks before collecting what was left and burying it on her property. She stated only his skull and one vertebra were left, along with his clothing. A year later, Robert Haney made the unfortunate mistake of answering that help ad, and I suspect one day he found himself on the receiving end of her temper. During this portion of Susan's interrogation, she does as most suspects do and distances herself from the crime. In a cliche move, she also paints herself as a savior, stating she found Robert on his back in the pig pen, and I quote, "...his guts were everywhere." She stated at one point she went into her home, retrieved her twenty two, and returned to the scene. From there, she claimed she aimed at Robert's head, averted her eyes, and fired a single round that ended his misery. Robert's skull would be later located on the property, and it would contain a singular bullet hole. Days later, Susan combed the pig pen, collecting Robert's clothing, and burned them in a burn barrel. She would later use his Oregon Trail card until it expired, and then burn that as well. It would later be learned that Robert had been dismembered. That portion of human leg found during the initial identity theft search warrant, that was Robert's. Former tenants of Susan's came out of the woodwork once the news broke. Of the interviews I observed, they all seemed to be within that vulnerable population so many predators prey on, without family, without means to help themselves, a very specific demographic we see victimized routinely. One tenant who actually lived on the property for years claimed Susan would kill animals and feed them to her pigs, including his cat. Other witnessed her temper and her firing warning shots in an angry response to someone else on her property. Watching the hours of interview and interrogation footage, there is not a minute that goes by where Susan doesn't demonstrate some odd behavior or tendencies. Often she will huff and puff in weeks' attempts to demonstrate dominance, even within the confines of the interview room within the sheriff's office. She even exclaims at one point that she could kill a deputy and feed him to the pigs. This is after she had shit her own pants and complains a fixture on the wall is crooked and bothering her. Most in the town deemed her intimidating. At the time of her booking, she was 5'10 and about 175 pounds. Sitting in filthy clothes and a knit hat, she refused to take off. One witness claimed she had picked him up and held him over the edge of the pig pen because she knew he was scared of the pigs. Susan is no doubt as strong as she is mentally ill. On April 14, 2014, Susan was arrested on two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of abuse of a corpse, and one count of identity theft. Susan pled not guilty on all charges and represented herself until finally obtaining legal representation. During the brief trial, a cellmate of Susan's took the stand and stated Susan signed her birthday card, the sweetest murderer in Jackson County. It might come as no surprise that on April 21, 2015, Susan was convicted of all counts after six days of testimony and only one hour of jury deliberation. Susan is currently incarcerated at the Coffee Creek Correctional Facility, is 75 years old, and officially began her sentence on April 28, 2015. She received two life sentences to be served consecutively. Sitting about 45 minutes north of where Episodes 5 case took place, 9184 West Evans Creek Road is roughly 19.9 acres of wooded Oregon land. It was more recently sold to new owners, and much like most states, the former owners and realtors are under no obligation to disclose what took place on that secluded thatch of land, or more specifically, how two separate victims were discovered there. It's safe to say that the current owners are probably aware of the history of that land, and if not on their own, I'm sure the neighbors have mentioned it. It's also important to note that Susan mentioned there being 17 other victims, yet a complete search of the property in its entirety yielded piles of random clothes and personal items that couldn't be explained, yet no other human remains were located. It's important to add that Susan was extremely concerned about what would come of her pigs. Upon learning that they would all be euthanized, she requested that they be donated to the food bank, which was denied. If you're interested in an interrogation techniques, I encourage you to watch The Interrogation of Susan Monaco, which you can find on YouTube. It's also cited in today's source notes, so go ahead and check that out. Her interrogation spanned approximately 12 hours on day one from what I've discovered, but a few hours of that are available online. In my opinion, there are some phenomenal interview and interrogation techniques demonstrated in this case, especially from such a small town. Often we equate quality to department size, yet this case kind of demonstrates how unreliable that thought process is in this particular situation. I'm super interested to hear your thoughts on this case and what you think really happened out there on Evans Creek Road. You can view the case images on my Instagram at murder, or you can also email me directly at milesandmurder at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to drop me a line if you have a case in mind that you'd like me to cover. Until next time, be safe.